0: We ask that you would meet with us. I pray you would help me. Specifically, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit's power in my life this morning and what I am sharing, I pray, Lord, your truth would make its rounds among us, Father, and also would be the thing that frees us, changes us, makes us more like Jesus. Again, thank you for the, not only the opportunity to meet together, but Father, thank you that we can hear your word. And that it does change. It changes us, Father. I pray and thank you for this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, four years ago, uh, I picked up a topic uh, because of a uh, because it was a certain time of year. If you didn't know, it's an election year. Anybody not know that? Well, four years ago, it was an election year, and I felt, and I continue to feel, it is the obligation of a pastor from time to time to address the uh, of what we would probably call the politics of the day. What's going on in the world? This is not unusual. John the Baptist, Jesus, they called out Herod. And in the book of Acts, we see the apostles interact with the politicians and the politics of the day that they ministered in. So this is not Unusual. Of course, with election seasons here in our country, it typically brings about it a great deal of discussion or argument or just plain yelling at one another. But it does bring to the forefront things like issues that we care about, issues that we're concerned about, things that we see perhaps in our nation that we dislike, things that we do like, and we, we just have generally these conversations and thoughts that are going on this time of year. Of course, we have the added reality that nobody alive today has had to deal with a uh, pandemic. But we also have the reality of knowing that we are not the first to have to deal with this kind of season. Of course, over the course uh, the, of the summer, we saw several uh, people we, in these biographical sermons I did, met several people that encountered these kind of similar situations. My goal in coming into this again, as it was four years ago, is simply to to do my best to help you think. We will address some issues by name specifically, uh, but we're not going to start there. I want you to be able to take everything that you're seeing on social media, everything you're hearing in conversation, everything you're interacting with on TV, and I want you to be able to pass it through a biblical filter. So this morning we come to 2 Kings. And these are a series of historical accounts. They're not even really even in chronological order. These are uh, historical accounts that were sp- uh, picked specifically uh, to show us two things. Second Kings is really about showing us two things. The first is this. What would happen if God's people would believe him? What would happen if God's people would believe him? And the second thing that 2 Kings wants us to see is what happens when God's people don't believe him. And we'll read a number of situations in this book where a king or a person or even a group of people are going to encounter a problem. And they are not going to be simple problems, but the kind of things that would truly trouble the heart. So in that trouble, the author wants you to see, do they believe God? Or do they not? Now our text this morning, as you heard me read, was a time of considerable trouble. We see poor administration, we see food shortages, real questions about life and death. But what I want you to see is that when these events or these troubles happen, it is not that it leads to doubts about the existence of God. There's never anybody in this book that goes, well, I guess this means God doesn't exist. When these kind of troubles find their way to the door of God's people, the thing they begin to doubt is whether or not God is near. Or in other other words, does he care? Will he help? Let me ask you in the last six months, how many times have you doubted the nearness of God? And all through, example, all through the scriptures, we see examples of how our great enemy loves to bring trouble to the door of God's people in hopes that we will respond with unbelief. And I would suggest to you this morning that the biggest threat to Christians in troubled times is not the government. The biggest threat to Christians in troubled times are not micro tips, it's not viruses, it's not riots in Portland. The biggest threat to Christians in times of trouble is unbelief. You see, as Christians, we can neither think nor act rightly about politics or political issues from the position of unbelief. And so from our text this morning, I want to show you why this is the case. Why it is dangerous to interact with the political issues of today from the position of unbelief. Number one this morning, unbelief will cause blindness. Unbelief will cause blindness. Now before we get to verse 15, let me set the stage here. The Syrians are a nation to the north and they begin to conspire, at least the king does, he wants to trouble Israel, so he draws up these secret plans. He's going to send these uh, this secret squad of soldiers and get, put them in Israel to catch them by surprise. Unfortunately, we have Elisha, and Elisha continually is continuously informed by the Holy Spirit about these plans. Elisha goes to the king of Israel, warns him about what's going to happen, and the king of Israel's able to disrupt Syria's plans. And as you can imagine, this greatly irritates the king of Syria. He finds out that it's Elisha who's the, the king's informant. And so he goes with this plan to go to where Elisha is and capture him. He sends this militia, if you will, uh, a group of hired soldiers is the idea here. We maybe call them pirates if you want to think of it that way. But they're, this isn't professional army men. These men are being hired for this particular uh, idea. And that brings us to verse 15. Elisha's got a servant. And one morning the two of them get up and they're standing there and they realize their city is now surrounded by these marauders. And the servant turns to Elisha and asks, my master, what shall we do? The idea of the text is clearly the servant is, is rather anxious. Surrounded by this threat of danger, suffering, likely death. Knowing the people of a city are not going to defend them. The king of Israel's is not coming. But how does Elisha react? Look at verses 16 to 17. He says, well, I want you to know there's actually more with us than are with them. And he prays that the Lord would allow his servant to see. And he's able to see. And what he sees is this heavenly host ready to come to Elisha's defense. But that's not the only blindness in this chapter it's not the heavenly host that comes and defends Elisha no Elisha instead he prays that the Lord would strike these soldiers blind which God does Elisha then leads this group of mercenaries literally to the king of Israel's backyard In verse 21 the king says Elisha should I kill them all I want you to, I want to explain that, that question because we didn't read it. The, the Syrians have been using these small militia-like forces to to commit these raids, these guerrilla warfare into Israel. and so they would go into these undefended cities and they would raid them, and the many times would burn them to the ground. And so from the king's perspective, if you're gonna, these are guys who've committed atrocities, and so from his mind, these men deserve to die. On the other side of that too, Is It sends a pretty clear message, right? You're going to come in here. You're going to burn down my cities. If I get you, you get to die. But Elisha says, no. In fact, I want you to feed these men and send them home. That's really different than what the king thought to do, wasn't it? You're supposed to notice that. That there is a clear contrast between what the king thought to do and what God wanted him to do. And he does it. He feeds them, gives them bread and water, sends them home. And the Bible reports that the marauders, these pirates, whatever you want to call them, stop committing these atrocities. They stop working for the king of Syria. But here's some things I want you to notice. Is that doubting God's nearness, Elisha's servant thought they were alone to defend themselves. And as a result, that servant's mind filled with anxiety question was or is were they alone were they alone no let me ask you how many of you have struggled during this time of trouble with having an untamed imagination maybe you find yourself playing over and over again in your head all the things that could possibly go wrong You see, one of the things, in times of trouble, believers have an issue. They become blinded by their circumstances and only see with their physical eyes. We become very earth-minded, very time-sensitive. And we lose complete track or complete sight of the unseen things. We lose sight of the unseen reality. And when that happens... It becomes very easy to believe that the next election is the most important one. When we come very much into our physical eyes and we lose track of the unseen reality, it becomes very easy to think that all the bad things going on today will simply be worse tomorrow. And all those times that we can think of where God showed himself strong or showed himself loving or showed himself to be near, we begin to cast these things off as delusions. Now, doubting God's nearness, the king thought he needed to solve his own problem. And figured he should kill all these marauders, but is that what God wanted him to do? No. No. So let me ask you, when you look into the madness of what is going on in our world today, what kind of remedies pop up in your head? In times of trouble, as believers, we can become blinded by our circumstances and immediately proceeds in a loss of compassion. Compassion. We become consumed by the troubling sight of falling statues and we have no compassion for parents who had to deal with a five-month spring break. We don't have compassion for teenagers who are right now having to deal with very adult fears. We lose compassion for all of those in our church who have dealt with death. So let me ask you, if you were in charge of Portland or Chicago or Seattle, would your thought be just kill them all? As Christians, we are called to navigate this life, all the issues, all the trouble of this life. We are called to navigate by the knowledge of the existence of the unseeable. We are never called to lay down compassion. Compassion especially not in troubled times. And unbelief will cause us to be blind to both of these truths and will certainly change how we understand and how we respond to the challenge of our time. Unbelief causes blindness. Number two this morning, unbelief leads us to false wisdom. Unbelief leads us to false wisdom. The story in the text continues. We have a a short pause in this conflict. Verse 24 tells us, though, the king of Syria decides he's no longer going to go with the guerrilla warfare tactic. He has it in his head. He's now going to conquer Israel with his army. So he takes his army and he besieges the capital of Israel known as Samaria. He besieges. The idea there is to surround the city so nobody gets out, nothing gets in. So, of course, what that's going to lead to is all of a sudden, like, uh, grain is going to become scarce. It's going to drive up the cost. Garbage is going to begin to pile, so fresh water is going to be hard to find. Verse 25 tells us the price for everything decides to go up. Even the, the droppings of a pigeon are for sale. Things are getting desperate. In fact, we get a brief story here about how bad they are. One day, the king's kind of traveling around Samaria. He's inspecting the city. Think of like Churchill after the bombings in London. And he runs into this woman. And she says, you need to help me. King responds, well, what do you want? You want food or you want wine? Is that what you're looking for? I don't have any. She says, no, no, no. What you need to do is intercede uh, between me and my neighbor. You see, we made this agreement that we would kill and eat our children so we wouldn't starve. Do you see how bad things are? And she says, except my neighbor has decided not to hold up her end of the bargain. And hearing this, the king tears his clothes and he puts on ashes and sackcloth as a sign of mourning. But I want you to notice verse 31. Because this horrible moment causes him to commit to killing Elisha. That seems a little random, but let me explain it. In a modern sense, Elisha has spent a great deal of time witnessing to the king of Israel. He has been telling the king of Israel to trust the promises of God. So from uh, from the king's perspective, it's Elisha's advice to trust God that has led to this time of trouble. You think of the people who came out of Egypt. They looked at Moses and said, well, you trusted God to take us somewhere. Now we're out in the desert. We don't have any food or water. That's the idea. So he's blaming everything on Elisha. So he sends this messenger, this assassin. He wants him to take off Elisha's head. But after the man leaves, the king comes to his senses and realizes this isn't the answer. The assassin shows up at Elisha's house. Elisha tells everybody, block the door, because the king's not far behind to let this man know that he has in fact changed his mind. Let me explain the idea of wisdom. These two women in that story were afraid of dying of hunger. So if you want to put it this way, the beginning of wisdom was their fear... Of dying of hunger. And so they knew that eating their children would keep them from dying of hunger. Or you go to the king. The king believed that the beginning of wisdom was the death of Elisha, and he knew this assassin would result in Elisha's death. And we're meant to see here that this problem of unbelief has not just infected the wisdom of the ordinary people of God, so much so they're committing these immoral atrocities. But this unbelief has also infiltrated what we maybe describe as the government. And it has become, it has started to make rash, unwise, immoral decisions. There's been a lot of fear over the last six months. As we see in the examples of our text, when we're afraid, we're ready to bargain. And we'll bargain even the most immoral thing to stave off that fear. Now, you might say, Pastor, okay, I'll admit it. I've had my moments of really being afraid over the last six months. But I would never commit such gross immorality. But that's actually not the point. The point here is that this fear created a willingness to compromise or bargain for the purpose of reducing or freeing them of this fear. And we will begin to compromise and bargain. We compromise with our temper. Maybe if I'm angry enough it'll drive the fear away we compromise with substance maybe if i just had a significant other maybe if it was just a little bit of alcohol maybe this a little bit of pornography maybe it'll just alleviate my my stress we'll do whatever we'll pay whatever just to be free of fear and we become open to foolishness and folly let me ask you where does the bible say fear or where is the bible say that wisdom is found is, it the, is, is the fear of COVID the beginning of wisdom? Is the fear of socialism the beginning of wisdom? Is the fear of running out of toilet paper the beginning of wisdom? Is the election victory or defeat of Donald Trump the beginning of wisdom? Is the fear of transmitters and vaccines or Bill Gates in, in his billions or the motivation of the CDC, is the fear of those things the beginning of wisdom? Is it Fox News or CNN or Rush Limbaugh? Is that the beginning of wisdom? What's the answer? No. None of those things are. So, why are so many of us looking there for wisdom? Because of unbelief. It's the source of every folly and every bit of foolishness we see from our public leaders. And it is the source of every folly and every foolishness of God's people. And if you're looking to those places to be the starting point about how you think through today's issues, through the trouble of the time, that you are not believing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So why is unbelief the greatest danger to Christians in troubled times? Because we are blind and we become irresponsible and we begin to trust false wisdom. And lastly this morning, number three, unbelief will reduce our value of the gospel. When the king arrives in verse one of chapter seven, Elisha tells him good news. It's very much a gospel message. He says, by this time tomorrow, there's going to be so much food that flour is going to drop from being $100 a pound to now costing pennies. It's good news. But a general that is standing there says, I don't believe it. You see his answer in verse 2 of chapter 7. If God were to open the windows of heaven, might that be enough to have that happen? You see the text is making it clear he's not shocked this is complete unbelief he is ridiculing the idea that Elisha is saying trust God so then Elisha says to him you'll see it but you won't get to enjoy it the text moves away from that scene to a group of lepers and suddenly they look at their situation they're lepers in a town that has no food or clean water they decide to surrender to the Syrians, hoping they'll live. They'll be okay if they die. It's just anything's better than this horrific situation they're in. And so they go out into the camp, and they find that the Syrian camp is empty of people. And the Bible explains it in verse 6 of chapter 7. The Lord created fear and confusion among the unbelievers. So much so, they left everything behind. All the flour, all the meat, all the jewelry, all the weapons, everything. Everything. The lepers make sure the king finds out. Now, the king is pretty sure it's a trap. But there's an investigation. He finds out. It's true. Word gets out into the city. There's this mad rush by the citizens to clean the place out. If you go to verse 18, which we didn't read in chapter 7, all the prices begin to fall. Just as the good news that Elijah shared and proclaimed, it came true. And we find out the king's general sees it. And then gets trampled by the crowd of people trying to get to it. And dies what a way to go now i want to be clear about a couple of things first of all we must make sure that we understand the gospel of jesus christ is far more important than the november elections it's more important than vaccinations more important than masks or riots in portland and before we can talk about any of those political issues this must be clear the gospel of jesus christ is significantly more important But that's not the only thing you need to consider. The Bible says the gates of hell will not prevent the spread of the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you? Let's take a little test. All of us sit here this morning seeing the spread of foolish ideas and foolish actions. And I guarantee you those with the white hair and the gray hair and the no hair, they see it the clearest. So let me ask you this. Has it ever occurred to you that God is allowing these things to happen to create confusion and fear among them, the unbeliever? That all these things are happening in order to tear down the gates of hell so that we can go forward. Or let me put it this way if you if you look around and you think that the trouble, the issues of our society are going to bring to a halt the spread of the gospel, then you are seeing it with unbelieving eyes. And then I would ask you this. How do we not see that a culture that begins to preach that there is no such thing as forgiveness isn't going to just drive people straight into the arms of the gospel that preaches free and total forgiveness? What sounds more hopeful and fulfilling? A philosophy that divides everyone by race or gender or a gospel that binds people of all kinds to an unbreakable eternal bond. But I say one more thing. In times of trouble, we must reach for the gospel. Now, I don't want to say that in an an ethereal way. During this time of pandemic, for me, I've spent more time in the gospels. I have listened to more gospel-proclaiming music. I have read more books about the love of Christ. That's what I mean for reaching for the gospel in high anxiety. Because you know what? The gospel reminds me I will have trouble. In this world, I will have trouble. But Christ has overcome the world. I'm reminded that the enemy will try and lay guilt in my feet. But Christ has paid for all of my guilt. And so no charge can be brought against his elect. And the gospel reminds me that as these enemies breathe their threatenings, one day they will bow the knee. What I say to you is that it should be hard for the keepers of the good news to be so pessimistic. So over these two chapters, we have surprises, we have anxieties, we have trouble. And we watch as unbelief causes blindness, it causes irresponsibility. We see the people of God, we see this king go after false wisdom because of their failure to believe. And we see this unbelief causing the setting aside of the good news. And over the history of the church, we can find all sorts of examples of Christians responding to changes in the world with unbelief, and the consequences are always tragic. But as we spent this summer seeing, we have examples of Christians responding with faith to glorious results. So, will we let ourselves become blind and irresponsible by what surprises us? Will we chase after false wisdom when we are anxious? Will we put the gospel away when we have trouble in this world? Because if we do, we will never see and we will never respond rightly to the issues of our day. So by God's grace, may the answer be no. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the examples we have in scripture. And I pray, Father, that we would repent of our moments of unbelief. Lord, let us turn back. Give us sight so that we are not blind. May we approach your wisdom and not our own. And Lord, let us keep the gospel at the center. Thank you, Father, for these reminders, even though at times they hurt, these reminders, Lord, that we do fail. Lord Lord just just help us to not respond with unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.